This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Head of Coach Education at the Scottish FA, Greg Patterson. He discusses the challenges COVID has presented with their coach education programme, how they have used the expertise of professional Scottish coaches and the knowledge gained when on study visits across Europe. This podcast was also recorded over the internet, so it may sound a little different to normal. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Greg, first of all, I appreciate you giving up a little bit of time to um, to do this. I guess first question is, how are you? How's the family and everything in this strange COVID time that we find ourselves in? No, it's a pleasure to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. Um, and, and we're all good. Thanks. We're all good. I think. Um, what day is this? Is this this is Thursday? <laughs> this is Thursday now. You get so confused, don't you, with with days of the week and things. So I think the reason I'm asking what day is, we're I think the last count, thirteen weeks passed on Tuesday. I've now been working from home, you know, I remember a meeting on the 17th of March, Tuesday the 17th of March and at Hamden saying that was us, you know, on you go um, and kind of, you know, you're, that's you, you're working from home now. So it's been a long time um, and some, in some ways it feels like you know, 13 months and in other instances it feels like just 13 hours, you know, it's just, it's, it's whisting in some regards as well. We've just been so busy in coach education and it's been good for me to be around, be around the family. Yes, still very busy and sometimes living under the same roof as the family but not necessarily seeing them but no listen it's been great to get out with a you know even a daily walk even myself and my wife are saying you know maybe you know once lockdown's passed we should do a daily walk for the kids and but you're just so busy normally the kids are running about to different you know football and swimming lessons and we ones get dance lessons and different things you know you're normally running about to all those different things that you don't have time for that family walk for maybe an hour an hour and a half a day which has been which has been nice albeit that I might be spending half of that time on the phone or whatever so no it's been good um and as you say strange strange times indeed and it'll be interesting to see how we come out of it I mean I guess for you um it's presented some challenges within your role um, particularly having to do stuff remotely, do you just want to talk and explain to people kind of what your role is, and then go through maybe the challenge, some of the challenges you faced recently in having to engage online more, I guess. Yeah, so my so my role in, in the Scottish FA, I'm I'm head of coach education and development with the Scottish FA. So <laughs> to give you that kind of potted history, as you suggest, Michael, you know, football in Scotland stopped on the thirteenth Friday, Friday the thirteenth. That'll be forever etched in my it's in my brain. Friday the 13th of March, football stopped in Scotland. And then, as I said earlier, Tuesday the 17th of March, we were sent home from, from Hamden um, to work from home. So from that point in time, we made a kind of, we kind of drew a line in the sand. We looked at courses that were booked, um, spoke to our chief medical doctor at, at Hamden and with the Scottish FA, Dr. John McLean. And, and John, John kind of predicted, he said, you'll be in this for maybe 12 to 14 weeks. So we kind of looked at that 12 to 14 weeks, as I say, brought us to about now. Um, you're probably entering kind of school holiday times here and things like that. And, they, you know, the, the kind of summer, traditional summer downtime. I know some some seasons are out of kilter a little bit. So we made a decision in, in coach education to cancel all face-to-face coach education delivery until the 1st of September. Just to give us that little bit of headspace, I suppose, as well, in terms of planning. Um, not just for ourselves, but obviously for the, the course participants that were coming along. 
So we made that decision, that line in the sand to the first of September. So our first our first aim and objective was really to try and replicate learning or coach education courses for those people that had committed to courses up to and including the fourth the first of September. Um and that took a long time. Um the team the team were the team the coach education team is very small. It's only it's only myself, two coach education managers coach education coordinator and an administrator so it's a, it's a very small team but we, we lean heavily on our regional structures throughout Scotland but the team worked very very well we kind of worked around the clock for the first three weeks and I kind of laugh and I use the Thomas Edison analogy just now Michael but you know the Thomas Edison you know everybody thought he was nuts he, he came up with a thousand ways to try and you know invent a light, light bulb and electricity before he actually came up with the right answer and that was a little bit like what we did that first three or four weeks of lockdown that's what we were engaged in was how on earth do we try and get these courses that we're so used to delivering in face-to-face formats how do we get them online so i think after week two we were chucking it we were maybe just well, do you know what let's just go into furlough i don't think we can come up with anything week three we got a little bit better and then things would happen and We'd, we'd explore different possibilities and um, eventually we hit on something that we thought would work that we thought would work very well after all that after all that hard work so as I say we, we managed then to contact all those people that committed on courses until the 1st of September and then the feedback was absolutely fantastic um, we, we believed in what we were trying to do as well we believed in the product we'd built online for, for a lot of these courses and then the, the kind of format we had in place worked for different courses. So the courses that we started to offer grew and grew. And then every single course we started putting out and advertising was becoming fully booked. Um, and that and it's just kind of grown and blossomed from there. So out of that, it's kind of born a very a very good success story for the for us in the Scottish FA and coach education. Um, because we've now got a huge, we've now got, I think, when we come out of lockdown now, we've got a kind of period of reflection we'll need to go through and see how much do we want to maintain online and how much do we want to go back to that modern traditional method of face-to-face. And I think it'll definitely be a hybrid model, but so that's the kind of way, that's why I'm saying earlier on the, the period's kind of whizzed by. Um, so that's the kind of potted history, if you like, of, of our past 13 weeks. So what does the pathway look like in Scotland? Is it similar to the English FA or is there differences? So our pathway, our path, I laugh. Our pathway is probably as let me get this right now. Our pathway is horizontal, uh, as as vertical at times. So we've got we've got courses for youth, youth and adult players. So your main pathway, as you as you've alluded to there, Michael, you know, which 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 includes the B license, the UFA B license, UFA license, UFA Pro license. We've then got a pathway for children's coaches, for futsal coaches, for goalkeepers, and we've recently launched a talent ID pathway as well. So we've got all those different pathways. The starting point for everything is exactly the same. You do an online children's wellbeing course and you do what we call an introduction to coaching course. Um, and it was introduction to coaching course we tried to get, you know, we tried to first of all develop online. Thereafter, once you've completed them, you can then choose your, your specialism, I suppose, whether it's youths and adults, whether it's children's goalkeepers or those others that I, I, I talked through earlier. So. You then kind of kick on and you go as high as you like in any in any of those pathways. So the kind of tra- the main pathway or the youth or adult pathway, you would do your introduction to coaching, your coaching certificates, your youth and adult coaching certificate, your youth and adult coaching award, 
which would then take you into the C licence, the B licence, the A licence, the Pro licence, which is that traditional UEFA pathway that, that most people will know. The B licence for me is probably the most critical course, because from B licence you go into, you can go to across to the goalkeeping pathway, you can go across to the youth pathway, you can even go into the futsal pathway um, once you get to that B licence. So, um, yeah, that's that's the kind of pathway. It's difficult, it's a difficult one to explain without having a, you know, without having a graphic in front of you, but there's just so much to it. So, is it like the FAs? Yeah, it pretty much is like the FAs, and, and you know, in, in, in a lot of ways. But it's also it's also quite it's also quite different. I think every FAs, you know, you could look at you know fifty five FAs in Europe. You could look at every single one, and would would all be different in some kind of stretch stretch of the imagination. But you know, once you get to that UEFA pathway, you know, C license, B license, A license, that's that's always the same. Um, but other associations will think that their needs of the game are slightly different round about that. So in terms of looking at that particular pathway, if we if we look at the you know going through that award and then going down the the B license A license type of stuff, yeah. how did you go about looking to move all that content online, and what were some of the key factors for you in doing that? I suppose the key factor, you know, from a the key factor was you know there was a lot of key factors coming in. You know, we had. With a lot of applications in for our B license, um, and traditionally we always deliver our B license kind of as soon as the season ends in Scotland, as soon as the Scottish Cup final weekend. Although the Scottish Cup final was a bit earlier this year, um, which is probably mid-May, so we we then go the team basically takes up residence at um, Orium, which is our national performance centre through in Edinburgh, and we deliver the B license and A license courses through there for that for that period of time. So that was one factor. So that whole month of activity, you know, we we wouldn't we just basically wouldn't have that if we decided not to go online. The amount of applications we had as well, um, you know, and, and then obviously you've, you've always got the finance director. You know, there's no point there's no point lying about it. The finance director's always looming, isn't it? And he's all, you know, he's kind of saying we try to we try to mitigate loss. You know, people have obviously applied for a course, and then you know if we turn around and say well we can't deliver a course, then all that money has to go back out, all those subscription fees um, has to go back, so there was that point um, as well, and then you had the other thing that you know, it very quickly came to pass that people were people were, you know, at home wanting to invest in their own learning, and that was a huge learning thing for me, or a learning factor for me early in lockdown, was that the first need and want from people to actually you know, do more education, so out of this time has sprouted Many people doing webinars when they probably never even knew what a webinar looked like 12 weeks ago. You know, to, to, to literally hundreds of people. Um, you know, people getting on different conference calls to discuss things. So there was that kind of, all those different factors come into play to think, you know what, we need to go ahead with these UEFA licenses in some way, shape or form. So what we decided, Michael, was to basically lift, we spoke to all the, the kind of guest expert speakers that we have on our B licence and A licence and said, you know, spoke to them got their kind of views and how they would like to do things online. Um, you know, it's easy to set up a webinar and allow people just to chat and chat and chat, just as, as, as you and I are perhaps doing just now, but we like to make things as interactive as we possibly can. So exploring breakout rooms and exploring different tasks and different things we could do in Zoom and the likes. And so all that, again, came into play. And then we decided what to do was just to lift basically all our theory work um, and put that online. So, you know, again, 
fucking think back to you know times previously when we were delivering courses. In fact, when we deliver licensed courses, most of the time, generally speaking, the course would meet in the morning. We would do some theory work in the morning. We would go out on the pitch during the day, and then maybe early evening we would go back into the, the classroom and either reflect back on what we've done on the pitch during the day, or you know there'd be another theory input. So all that theory input would just decide, well, do you know what? Let's lift all that theory in, input out of the way and um, and put it online. And, and let's deliver that part. So, you know, we will hit the buffers, so to speak. You know, because we've done all the theory now, we now need to go on the pitch. That's that's the next that's the next component part of it. Um, but for the time being, we've done all the theory. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see now when we do get on the pitch. You know, are the are the course participants really now ready and able to hit the ground running? They've been afforded a time now where they've been able to concentrate on, you know, what we're expecting of them on the pitch. As well as other theoretical aspects of, of you know of being a coach, whether that be B license or A license level, so we can now really concentrate on um, on working on the pitch and doing coaching practice, which is quite a nice thing because you know I think back to doing all my, my courses myself, B license, A license, pro license. You know if, if you've got a, if you've got a guest speaker in front of you, um, you want to yes you want to listen to the guest speaker, but if you know you're first up on that pitch outside in one hour's time. You're panicking a little bit, you know, and you're worried more about your session than you are about that guest speaker, you know, standing in front of you. So, so that's maybe been quite a nice thing as well, and that they've been able to clear their head from that that panic and that pressure that they might put themselves under. Um, as I say, so you know, looking forward to getting out on the pitch with the group now that we've spent those those kind of week long periods. So we're, we're in the middle just this week as well of an A license, so it's, it's just been kind of week long chunks, if you like. Um, of theoretical input to to those course participants. And how do you think, well, do you think there'll be any differences between those that have done the work online uh, to the, in a theory context, those who have done the work online compared to those who have done the theory with you in, in kind of a live fashion? I think, I think it's about headspace for me. And generally, you know, you and I even speaking offline before this, generally speaking, those people that are involved in football are always very busy. You know, you're you're either either busy in football itself or you're either juggling a couple of jobs, you're juggling a family, and you're you're juggling just so many things. I I don't know anybody in football that says they've got time to spare necessarily. Um, So I think that's maybe been quite a nice thing because people have maybe during this lockdown period had had a bit of time to spare. Therefore, they've been able to concentrate on the theory. So it'll be interesting to see now what they are theoretical assignment submissions will look like because, you know, they've maybe had a little bit more time, they've maybe had that little bit more headspace and then hopefully that will also, as you say, have an impact now on the pitch given that headspace they've maybe been afforded. And I guess for you, when when you're looking to create this curriculum, be it online as you have now or probably prior to that in terms of a way of how you want your pathways to look, you, you go and look for best best practice kind of all around Europe, all around the world. Um, can you talk through the process of when, when you're trying to come together with a curriculum, you go, actually, this is what suits our game and suits our coaches in Scotland. Yeah. Kind of yeah. what that process looked like and how you went about gaining the requisite information. So all, there's a 55 associations, I think, in Scotland, all 55, sorry, not in Scotland, in, in Europe, uh, under UEFA's um, umbrella, so... 55 member associations so 
every one of those members will be a UEFA coaching convention member. So basically, coaching convention states exactly what you've, what you've alluded to. The coaching convention states the minimum criteria that you must adhere to for each level of UEFA license course. So that's the starting point. However, that said, Michael, you could you could pick it up and I could pick it up and we could interpret it to two exact different ways. And that's where the differences from country to country kicks in. So you could pick up and read a curriculum for UEFA license that says you must you must spend six hours on reading the game. I pick that up and read, I must spend six hours on reading the game. And that means something completely different to you as it does to me. You could do that in a 7v7 game. I might do it in a 9v9 or the 11v11 game. So straight away, there might be a difference depending on what level um, we want we want to work at within that country. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is obviously, you know, in a role such as my own, um, as I said, I've got a, I'm, I'm fortunate I've got a small team. In the past, I, I didn't even have that. Um, you know, that's that's relatively new since the guys have, have managed to join us and we've managed to develop that team in, in Scotland. Um, so it might have just been myself, but it's you know it's picking it's picking people's brains, it's asking them what is needed in the in the game in the country, as you maybe say. The other thing that um, UEFA do for us is that there's there's what they call a UEFA share um, initiative. Now the UEFA share initiative maybe pits together let's say five countries, and they'll send out over five delegates from those five countries. And UEFA pay for all this, it's fantastic. Our last one, we went to Sweden at the tail end of last year. So five of us went to Sweden, and there was five from the Faroe Islands, there was five from France, there was five obviously from Sweden themselves, and then there was five from maybe another couple of countries, five delegates. And the topic around that was reality-based learning. So that was the topic for that specific UEFA share visit but for other UEFA share visits it might have been just the UEFA B licence or it might have been the UEFA Elite Youth A licence or it might have been the UEFA goalkeeping licences so we get together there Sweden hosted and for those four or five days that we're together we then discuss and we knock about ideas relating to that um, that, that subject matter so that's another way of, of you know of being able to you know formulate your thoughts and you'll always pick up a lot of good stuff for example in the UEFA Elite Youth A licence we do a, a one-week over, overseas visit. So we take the group to Benfica and they spend a week at Benfica as part of the elite, elite youth. I picked that idea up on a, a UEFA share. I can't remember what country it was from. Um, Denmark. Denmark do it. Denmark used to do it and, and, and said they got a lot from it. The students got a lot from it as well. It's almost like a mini pro licence. You're expected to do that at the pro licence level. And I just thought, you know what, that's a, that's a great idea. So you're always picking up ideas from other countries as well. Through the networks that UEFA affords, which I think's you know, which I think's an excellent idea, and I'm I'm huge, huge on benchmarking, always looking over the fence, as I say, seeing what others are up to. I think as well on that, you've also got in, in Scotland, we've got a fantastic network through Sport Scotland. Um, you know, it'll be the same in England, obviously Sport England and, and in Sport Scotland, Sport Scotland, the heads of coach education um, for all the different sports quite often come together, and it's always good to benchmark against them and listen to what they're doing. Obviously, they've not, you know, you can't compare a UEFA B license perhaps with a swimming level, level four or whatever, but you'll always pick up good ideas. So I suppose the short answer to your question is, is, is taking all those different experiences and taking all those different opinions in um, from all those different people and all those different national associations and organisations and putting that, I suppose, into a melting pot to then start sitting down and coming out with a with that curriculum. 
you know, and back to the back to the UEFA coaching convention, that will tell us that you must do six hours of leadership and six hours of you know performance psychology and four hours of, of injury rehab. So you start to be able to chip away at it quite a bit um, through the UEFA coaching convention criteria as well. I'd imagine the, the coaching share or the delegate share would be quite powerful. The ability to go into different settings and you know spend a week on a particular topic would really allow you to obviously get into that topic but also as you said there just kind of quiz other countries in terms of what they're doing are you for in your role are you able to go and do that quite a lot I mean how regular is that yeah it's a, it's a fantastic scheme it really is um I think I think it's now been running for I should know this off the top of my head because I'm married for 11 years I spent my <laughs> I spent my honeymoon on what the first ever UEFA share that we were invited to um and at the time, I just thought it was an opportunity I couldn't miss, um, and we just delayed our honeymoon, which was which was fine. But me and my wife, so you know, so it's been running for that length of time. So I've been fortunate enough. Probably you probably go on. I would say maybe an average of two, if not three, a year. So if I look back on that kind of eleven-year period, I've maybe been on about thirty of these trips. Now you don't always go on the trips. Quite often you host as well. Depends. So you, if I might come to. Might come to us at the Scottish FA and say, Greg, you're quite well renowned, quite well developed in your UEFA goalkeeping pathway. So, could you host what I'm on um, UEFA goalkeeping? And, you know, of course, you say yes. And then, um, you know, those four or five different delegations from different countries will come to you, as well as one UEFA expert. And the UEFA expert will help you put together that timetable, will help and we'll sit down and we'll discuss maybe what should be on the timetable, um, what we want the different countries to do. And as you see, the learning you get from from that from that is, is fantastic. And, and don't get me wrong, sometimes it's sometimes it's actually very good just to see that what you're doing is good. You know, sometimes you don't necessarily. Uh, it's rude of me to say you don't learn that much. You, you, of course, you do. You, but you might not always have that spark like I spoke of earlier. You know that one. She was. You know what? We definitely need to do that. We definitely need to invest in that and put that in our curriculum, like the. Like the trip to Benfica that now happens on our elite youth license that I spoke about. Sometimes it's great to listen to other countries and say, do you know what we do do that. So I'm I'm so glad. Sometimes it's really good just for recognition and just for that, that just for that checkpoint, that kind of health check to say, do you know what we're actually in a good place with what we do. Or you know because the countries might be saying, does anyone have any solutions to this? And you can say, well, GFS, yeah, we, we've we've been through that unfortunate period as well, and here's how we come out of it, and here's how the course is now better for it so as you say fantastic opportunity and you you know some of the people some of the people that you meet on these are just you know they end up being good contacts that you can pick up the phone to or drop an email to um you know depending on the language barriers at times as well but yeah a fantastic a fantastic initiative from UEFA. And is there any visits that you've been on that are quite unique in terms of the way that they deliver it compared to other countries anything that's particularly stood out? I think Anything that's particularly stood out, you know, when you when you say things like that, I remember being blown away in Italy, been absolutely blown away about their prerequisites for for your license, for example. Um, and it's just different different opinions, you know, and it, and it might have changed now. I'm maybe going back, I'm maybe going back eight years to when I sat in Cavertiano and listened to listened to the Italians talk, you know, and they were looking at I think the A license at the time you actually had to have. A minimum of 200 senior league appearances or some league appearances, something like that, to get on their UEFA license. Now that might have just been a point in time because they recognised there were so many players 
going through the system. Um, you had to have a degree to get on the list, you know, things like that. Just you're just sitting going, wow, wow. If we did that in Scotland, I was actually in Ireland at the time. If we did that in Ireland or Scotland, we just we basically wouldn't get anyone on the course. And fascinating to see that their take on it as well is that you, know, you think a country the size of Italy, the population of Italy, and how strong the game is in Italy, but they just they just separate the wheat from the chaff straight away and dilute that entire. I look that entire population to eventually only get 30 or 40 people through an A-licence each year, when they could probably be getting 300, 400 through an A-licence every year if they wanted. So that things like that to hear are really interesting. I always think it's good for us in Scotland to go to countries like countries like Denmark, countries like uh, maybe Croatia, um, you know, countries that are of a similar you know size in terms of population, might have a similar resource. Um, it's always good, obviously, to, to hear what the English are doing, but they've, you know, it's a different, it's a different resource altogether. Um, and some sometimes you're quite, sometimes you're, you're quite jealous of the, the kind of bigger countries and what they can do and how they can afford. You know, Germany, for example, is interesting. Again, you look at, you know, we all, we often get criticised about the cost of our of our UEFA license courses. You go to Germany and you see that the B license was only three hundred euros, I think, something like that, for a, for a period of time. But then when you actually look under the car bonnet and you see what the punters get for the 300 euros, again, without being rude, they probably don't get as much as we give them, you know, for the money they pay and, um, and maybe maybe a Scotland and an England. But that's just because they've got a huge resource that they can reinvest back that other countries don't have. So there's things all the time, you're right, it's not just about that curriculum. You can learn things all the time about, you know, the infrastructure of the country and, and different things. And it's, it's always fascinating for me to, you know, you read web articles or you read people having a pop at, you know, this is what's happening in Scotland and this is what's happening in England and, and this is what's happening in Germany. Look at Germany and look at this country. Have you really looked at that country though? Have they? Or have they just read someone's opinion, which is which is more often than not the truth? But when you actually afforded the opportunity to go and spend a week at these places and as I say, look under the car bonnet at what they're really doing, then sometimes these articles, you know, don't really have a leg to stand on and it's evident that they don't really know the intricacies what's going on within that country yeah i think um that's a common thing particularly on like twitter and stuff like that you'll see something flash up and you'll read it and you'll go wow that's true that's unbelievable and then you dig a little yeah, deeper right. then you find some contacts who might have been out there and you'll go well no they have this and all that type of stuff and it is I, th I think it's really interesting that be the opportunity to go into places and have a look like you said behind the curtain definitely allows you a better perspective of quite a lot of the time a lot of the work you're doing is good and a lot of the work that you're doing is similar I, from my personal opinion I don't think anyone has like a golden answer to say oh if you That's do right. this you you'll produce players or if you do this this is what's going to get the best coaches everyone does the same things you just have maybe in certain countries a really good buy-in to the system or you might have a particularly good coach educator who really speaks and can articulate themselves well which helps get those people through and sometimes it does come down to one or two people in the right positions that just allow a system or product to flourish yeah and and the that's right, it's so important that that product does flourish, and sometimes, sometimes it can, you know, sometimes it's like anything. It can be, it can be cyclical. The education in the country can be cyclical, and it can depend on the leadership of that as well. Um, 
so no, it, it, it can change. It can change so much. You know, I, I even look back on. You know, I spent eight years in a similar role in Ireland, and, and I look back, and the guys have changed the pathway over there since I left. And it's, it's just you know things change, and nobody's doing it. Nobody's doing it to be bad. People are doing what they think that you know for the right reasons. Absolutely for the right reasons. You know, so and as you say, things will change, and it, you know things might take a little, or there might be a, more of an emphasis placed on something, and that might become that might come strategy it might come from the board to say do you know what we need to do we need to get more b license holder i remember when i was in ireland we had to get more what was it we had to get more people it was, it was a lower level course but we had to get more people through kickstart what was called kickstart 2 at the time and we made a conscious effort then for a year to mix down another course to try and get as many people and afford our staff the opportunity to deliver more of these kickstart 2 courses now it never it never necessarily worked like that or I don't know, you know, three, four years later, did we notice the, the throughput better from that? No, not really. But you're right, it's just, everything's, everybody's doing everything for the same reasons. And sometimes, you know, and that, the reason is to try, and, to try and make football better, to try and essentially get better players on the pitch. You know, but first and foremost, you've got to get better coaches. And then for you guys, kind of, this will be my last question before we divulge kind of into your background and, and dig into what you've done. Mm-hmm curriculum how much is based around the needs of like the first team and so the example I use I know in England at the moment there's a lot of talk of kind of being able to produce fours and what they want fours to look like or having independent decision makers and I think that's something that's come down from you know higher up to say these are the type of players that we want at the top level and something that you guys do in the Scottish FA as well absolutely it is Um, and we do a lot of work with, with our performance department, um, you know, so the coach education sits in football development. We've also got a performance department who are probably more of the, the player developers, if you like. Um, you know, they're, they're the ones that look after our underage international teams. Um, you know, that Malky Mackay heads up that department, so you've got kind of Malky Mackay working in there, Scott Gemmell, Brian McLaughlin, you know, people with a good history and good standing in the game who, who work with. Who, who probably have a more hands-on approach with the clubs. Um, so we get the coaches from the clubs, perhaps, to come to coach education and we try and develop them. So more and more we're leaning on on the guys in performance. And the reason I tell that story is because they're in the middle just now of writing their national plan, probably alluding to what, you know, to what you're suggesting. What, what's the Scottish way? What does a, a, a future Scotland international look like? And that's what the guys are currently, currently delivering just now. But in the absence of that, we still work very closely with the performance department and, and trying to get there. And of course, the, the clubs will all have their different opinions about what a future Rangers player looks like, or a future Celtic player looks like, or a future Aberdeen player looks like. So you've got all that in the melting pot as well. But, you know, essentially what you've got to try and do, I think, is is come up with a, with a coach who has the competence. Um, and, and there's a lot of competencies you know now to be a coach. And that, that's, that's a big thing. It's not just... I, don't, I think maybe traditional coach education five or six years ago would have maybe just dealt with the, the on-pitch stuff. Um, and I mean as recently as five or six years ago, and I, I definitely notice a shift now, even through the UEFA coaching convention, that is, you know, in Scotland we've always been, I think, well thought of because of the amount of on-pitch work we've done um, and the amount of time we spend on the pitch. But more and more now, when I see criteria coming through from UEFA, it's very much 50% on-pitch and 50% off-pitch. And that perhaps reflects the game and from what, you know, when we're speaking to 
whether it be the guys in the performance department or whether it be you know the the, the head coaches at clubs um, is the time that's now spent off pitch you know the performance psychology side of things the performance analysis side of things the um, sports science and all these different things mental health like mental health was it mental health was barely considered five or six years ago you know now we're now we've got mental health courses or modules on every single course we do so i think things are evolving um, but it's that kind of more holistic approach to being a coach. So it's no, it's no longer just about can you take a training session and can you take match day. It's about can you take training session, can you take match day, can you work on a club's policy, can you work on individual development plans, can you do periodisation, can you, you know, blah, 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 blah. The list, the list goes on and on. So I think that's reflection now more so, I think, going forward in the future for coach education as well to, to harness all those different aspects um, and we certainly get that. I certainly get a lot of that. And it's interesting, this week on the UFA licence, we're working with Jack Ross, who's the Hibernian manager. Robin Nielsen is the, the United manager. Brian Rice is the Hamilton Ackies manager. And then we've got Scott Gemmler, under-21 manager. So they're there as close tutors with us this week. And it's interesting listening to those type of guys, particularly Jack. Jack's always said to me, you know what, Greg? Coach education's great. And he said, I, I learned a lot from coach education. He always pushes coaches to go and do more coach education. He thinks coaches need to be more educated, essentially, because players are players. Players will ask why coaches are doing things now. You know, again, traditionally, twenty years ago, you know, even even certainly when I was a young player, you'd be too scared to ask your coach why we were doing anything. But now it's Gaffer, why we're we doing this? Why we're we doing that? Why why we're we doing this exercise? So the coaches there. Forgot to be more organised, and and Jack Jack and I had a couple of conversations about, you know, in the club environment, it's not always a case that you've got sixteen players and I want you to go and do a session. That doesn't happen, <laughs> you know, because the the gaffer might come down and say, I, I want your right back, your centre midfield player, and one of your strikers. Well, bye. He says, well, I need them for I need them to do a shaping session, or I need them to work in my, you know, need them to work towards what we're trying to achieve in the game. The first team manager says that, and you lose through three, maybe three or four players out of your session. Then how do you adapt? You've no longer got the sixteen players that you're nice and comfortable working with. So I think that kind of reality-based methodology. So do you know what you've planned and prepared there for sixteen. You've actually only got twelve, and you've only got half a pitch. You know, and I think maybe in coach education, certainly in my time, I've been guilty of maybe affording people. The nice, you know, you've got a full pitch. You've got sixteen perfectly pumped up balls. They're all nice and clean for you, and you've got enough. You've got enough uh, bibs, and you've got sixteen players. And if you've only got fifteen, I'll make sure I'll give you a sixteenth player. But the reality is that that equipment might not turn up. You might not get one goal. There might be one side of the pitch is flooded. You can only use the other side of the pitch. All those different things come into play that test the coach on that kind of week to week basis when they're working at their clubs, depending on what level they're obviously working at. You know, as best as possible, that will be limited. But, um, yeah, I think all so. I think all those things, um, in terms of modernising coach education and giving people a, a better learning experience. But yes, yeah, certainly we, we listen to both our colleagues in performance, as well as as well as those guys that I spoke about who are currently working in the Premier League. I think there's two things that are really interesting there. The first one is um, the fact that you've got the that calibre of coach that's coming in to work with the candidates uh, the top end is brilliant because 
one it yeah, gives you know your younger coaches or the coaches that are going through that pathway the ability to probe or ask questions probably of people that they respect and maybe watch their team at weekends and stuff to go oh why did you do that and the rationale behind it which i think that's a, that's a really good and useful tool i'd imagine for the guys on the course um yeah yeah absolutely isn't it and the thing that blows me away about each of them that i mentioned was it's a, it's a quick phone call you know you hear players don't you players make announcements that often when man united said they were after me it was a no-brainer these guys it was like we sat down as a staff, a coach education staff, and we thought, who, who have we seen recently on pro licenses that we liked? Who do we think conducts himself well and, and things like that? You know, you know, it's, it's almost like us doing a recruitment selection, if you like, or, or maybe even headhunting them in. Right, like, do you know what? They're not of time. Let's pick up the phone and ask them. No. And it's, it's a one-minute one, it's a one phone call for me. Fantastic, Greg, no problem. No problem. When do we start? Let me know what you want me to do. Oh, by the way, I probably need you to do, you need maybe come in and work with us for a couple of days or get on a couple of Zoom calls with us about how we're going to put this module across or get your ideas. No, no problem, just let me know. Just fantastic, fantastic. So it's a huge, you know, it's not just, coach education is always the same. You know, it's not just that one and a half hour module delivery. The, the amount of time and effort goes into that one and a half hour module delivery is, is huge, you know, behind the scenes. And as you say, to get these guys that are just so open-minded um, but the thing, I think the thing we've got to learn as well is, is, that, is that they learn a lot from it and they've admitted that. You know, you think about, I think, again, probably traditionally we were guilty of, you know, it was all about tutor-led. You know, a lot of things can be more participant-led now so that the tutors get as much learning from it. You know, it's about, it's about facilitating learning rather than telling, telling, telling. You know, again, maybe... You know traditional teaching methods you know if you can have a more interactive approach to your your teaching methods then that learning will be certainly two ways and you know i know you know it's on zoom just now you know all these guys that i've mentioned they're all scribbling away they're all scribbling away as other people are talking taking down little notes and ideas um so no as you say absolutely fantastic to have them um, and even at b license level as well you know we James McDonough, who works at Edinburgh City, and, and Shelley Kerr, who our national team manager was, and that was fantastic for a lot of people on the B license. Of Shelley Kerr, there, who's the you know the women's national team manager, because a lot of people are working in the women's game. Now, I think the the well the the course participants being able to have that dialogue was really interesting. I know when I was doing my A license, um, we had the foundation phase coach from Crew there. Um, and one of the tutors said, can you talk through your club's philosophy about not having any defensive topics in their curriculum? Um, and it was a really good way of like challenging some of the ideas of what other clubs do in terms of he basically just went through the curriculum as to why they don't have any. They have certain setups for things like throw-ins to try and help the kids out and basically just went through the rationale of why they do it the way that they do it and how that affects the players and what they found. And I, I agree with what you said there. I think if this was, you know, five, ten years ago where it was all tutor-led, you never would have had that discussion unless maybe you're at the bar in an evening and it randomly comes up in conversation because I wasn't aware of it. Whereas the ability for someone to share that on the course in front of however many participants were there. It's really good learning and it challenged a lot of people's ideas. And similarly, I'm sure you'll have this in Scotland as well. Clubs do stuff different ways. 
and That's they true. have different yeah. philosophies and the ability to question someone on why they do that, which maybe then questions your idea, I think is great. I know from one of the study visits we did uh, up to Scotland was with Celtic with their band ideas about the weaker foot mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Really good way of challenging us to go, oh, well, are we doing enough to help our boys with their weaker foot and all that type of stuff? I'm sure you would have learned lots from that kind of environment where you're allowing people to divulge what type of stuff they do and how they've had success or what pitfalls they've had and i think you're right i think for me it's context michael you know the the context is so important it's easy to go to a game isn't it and and look at things and think he's doing this and why the hell is he doing that and why is that player playing like that well you don't know the context you don't know the context of what the manager or the head coach has asked that player to do the, the context of why the manager has asked that team to play like that and that's the that's the kind of nitty gritty if you like you know that you can get into during those conversations as you've said and, and that's just that's that's where the real learning comes from and I think again you know generally speaking on the terraces if, if we're at a game or watching a game on the telly we can be very guilty of kind of jumping to assumptions because of the way we are seeing that game through through our lens but in actual fact, you know, you've probably got to look at it through the head coach's lens because he might say, listen, there was a disciplinary issue at the week and I couldn't use that fullback, so I had to use the other fullback and he plays in a different way. So I wanted him driving inside rather than, you know, going up the line. You just don't know. You just don't know all these different nuances that are going on and idiosyncrasies that are going on throughout the club. And as you say, to get, to get a, I suppose, a, up close and personal with these guys and hear their opinion and hear them give their reasoning as to why that happens in that way, only then can you start sticking your hand up and asking questions. And that's where the real, you know, that's where the real learning happens. And I think going back to what we were saying before, the other thing that I thought really came out of what you said, which is interesting, is the idea of preparing people for something they're not prepared for. Because I think, as you said, everyone's guilty of going, well, I'm going to have 16 players, I'm going to have this much of an area, and on a course that looks great because you have that things because they prepared them for you whereas the idea of preparing them for a situation that doesn't arise like that I, th- I think it's great and I think that um, that will really help when people go back have you found that people found that useful when they've then gone back to their clubs and those types of situations arise if, if I'm being honest we've not done a huge amount of it what we've started doing a lot of on our elite youth licences is asking them, asking them to work with eight or nine players asking them to work with a very small group of players now, now that might happen or it, or it does happen you know sometimes you're, you're working with, with youth teams and you end up with that kind of number so you know we've, we've asked them to do that I remember years ago I, one, uh, just a fantastic morning with one year um, I was working in Ireland and uh, Lee Carsley was kicking about and Lee was very interested in coach education and obviously working with Eddie Boothroyd now is under 21s um, in England you know I Lee just wanted to go for a, a cup of coffee and we sat down and we chatted chatted through kind of coach education and he, he spoke about him as a player which was just great to, to hear and he spoke about, he thought he knew it all because of the level he'd at at the game and he couldn't believe what he didn't know when he then got into coaching and he, and he alluded back to him being a player and I think was it Coventry was that and Coventry went bust at the time and he said that's when I learned most as a player because there was no kit man and I had to take my own kit home and I had to wash it. There was no sports scientist at the club because the club was in administration as well. And he said, the boys and myself with no idea how to make up protein drinks, with no idea how many scoops to put in it, how many milliliters of water or milk to put in it. Um, 
you know, so he started talking about then when he got, was it was it Brentford he was working at initially I think with under twenty threes or whatever, and he started speaking about he asked the kit man to take a day off. I can't take a day off. The players are in tomorrow. No, take a day off. So the players would come in then, and their kit's not ready. You can get your kit ready yourself. You know, so that learning, as you said, so it's putting it. I suppose that the learning, whether you're a player or whether you're a coach, what I'm trying to say here is, it's about putting those speed bumps in the way that help prepare you for the unprepared, as you called it, I think, earlier. You know, and helping you, you know, the speed bumps aren't too big that, you know, you're going to come to a shuddering halt, but, you know, you might just you might just learn a little thing. Those boys that day, the kit man was off, might have just learned where the, you know, where the kit was stored, and they might have learned where to put it at the end of the day, or they might have learned how to make up that, that protein shake, you know, simple, simple things, but simple things that, you know, you need to look after yourself, whether you're a player or a coach as well. So, you know, I always look back on that that morning with Lee that I maybe I maybe had eight years ago and just how valuable it was and, you know, as I say, preparing people for those speed bumps they're going to they're going to come up they're going to encounter somewhere along the line. No, I, th- I think that's a, re- a really good way of doing it. I know I've mentioned before and here I feel like my grounding a lot came early in my, my coaching journey, if you like, where I wasn't just doing football, I was doing all sorts of sports and I'd get dropped into a session because someone hadn't turned up and I'd get a phone call from my boss saying, oh, can, can you come and deliver this session? Or, you know, I was delivering volleyball, never done volleyball before in my life, like apart from maybe on a beach, it was a bit of a laugh, but then I'm having to coach kids it. And I felt like for me, having that flexibility and ability to adapt kind of last minute was a real plus in my journey, um, which it seems like that's kind of what you're saying there, putting those speed bumps in, um, but maybe doing it in a football context where, you know, it, it challenges your coaches to think about just something small like, oh, I haven't got the exact amount of kit that I need, okay, so how am I going to adapt this session that I plan really, really well so that it still works? And I, th- I, th- I think that's something that um, I'll, I'll probably challenge, going back to when I'm working and everything's that thing, I'll probably challenge my coaches with that and just every now and again, I think it, it keeps coaches honest, but also makes you uncomfortable and we always say you've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable because that's where your learning is. So I think that's, that's, that's a really, really, really good way, really good way of doing it. Um, I guess for you, kind of looking back over your your journey and stuff, um, you would have had a lot of grounding kind of at that lower end as well, particularly starting off as like development officer and whatnot. Do you just want to talk yeah. us through kind of your your journey as to how you got here and yeah, kind of I guess starting off as a development officer if if that was your first role. Yeah, the development officer, the development officer starting for me was was a. Was looking back was was an incredible one. It's that way, Michael. You know, twenty odd years ago, when I never really knew what I wanted to do. You know, I was kind of flitting around lower leagues in Scotland and things like that. And even then, it was only reserve teams of lower league football. You know, and oh, you look around and all your friends are applying for university, and I'm thinking, I suppose I better apply for for university myself. And there wasn't many. I was I was reasonably academic. Was quite reasonably clever, you know, in terms of getting grades, and I quite enjoyed studying. So, you know, chief, I better apply for university as well. But all my pals are, and they all seem to know what to do. But sports-wise, it was 
unless it was sports science, physiotherapy, or PE teaching, then that was about it at the time, you know. So I suppose I, I didn't really fancy PE teaching, you know. I, I thought nine to three every day, that kind of monotony. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one for days being different. You know, I like a, a different day rather than waking up every morning at the same time to go to the same place at the same time and take the, take the same groups of kids. Whilst it have been a good job, I, I just thought, you know what, that kind of treadmill of doing the same thing day in, day out, you know, it maybe isn't for me, so what else is out there? And then I kind of happened upon sports science and it never really happened for me. I, I kind of went to university and I remember sitting down with a advisor of studies and he says to me, you need to take, you need to go and do chemistry. This was at Glasgow University. You need to do chemistry and you need to do physics. In your first year, and I'm saying, bloody hell, I've not even done chemistry and physics <laughs> at school. You know, I hadn't done it at school, never mind, sorry, it was chemistry and biology, even chemistry and biology, I'd only done physics at school. So that never, that never got off a very good start, of course. Biology was all about bloody cutting up bullseyes and goodness knows, and I'm just thinking, where's, what's this got to do with sport in my first year? That, but that's what it was at the time, that's what it was all those years ago, so... Fortunately then, I kind of I was at Partick Thistle at the time, which was decent because Glasgow University was just down the road, so that kind of worked out well. And then I ended up at Cowden Beath, playing a little bit there. Um, but the, the year after that, I then got into Jordan Hill or the University of Strathclyde to what folks called a sport and a community degree, and and that was fantastic. That was kind of it was either that sport and a community degree you did. It was either really that or PE teaching through in Edinburgh if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to be in sport. I was on, I, was, I never got into the sport in the community the previous year, so I was fortunate again the following year. Um, and it was when I got in that that course that year, you were given a, I think a six week placement. You had to give, you, you know, they sent you out in a six week work placement, which was great. So that six week work placement, I was posted with a football development officer. I was posted with John Brown, who was the football development officer in East Renfrewshire Council, which was my local on my local area near Glasgow. And um, John had just started the job recently, so that was fantastic. And John afforded me the opportunity, I suppose, with him to try and build the football development programme in East Renfrewshire Council. Um, so I saw that through to fruition. And from that point on, I thought, you know what, I kind of fall in love with the job during that work placement and I just wanted to become a football development officer. So I aligned all my all my work, all my studies to the to the work of the football development officer. So whether it was a marketing assignment or a, a financial assignment or whatever else, even a coaching assignment, I would always align that to the you know, to the the real the reality based if you like, um, the reality based learning if you like that, that John was going through as the football development officer at the time as he was getting that programme up and running. So so that was where that came from and because of that as well, the spin off from as you said was all the non-community-based coaching. You know, one minute you're dealing with the, the tiny tots, the three and the four-year-olds, and the next minute you're dealing with, you're maybe going to an area such as Barhead, where you're dealing with some, let's just say, a little bit more rough and ready 16 and 17-year-olds, and getting that kind of holistic experience and coaching for all those different all those different levels. Um, Scottish Chef started, you know, um, development squads, you know, so there was all the kids that were obviously going to academies, and then we started development squads to support all that. So that was then kind of started working with kids that were a little bit more elite, first year, second year, third year in school. Um, so that was where that was kind of born out of. And then, you know, 
second year placement again with, with Tony Doherty, who's now the assistant manager at Aberdeen, um, and, an, and another local authority. Um, I think that was a three-month placement, which again just brilliant. So that was where that whole experience just in community football just built on uh, and built on. So that when I did come through that degree program, you know, I was I was match ready. <laughs> or as match ready as I possibly could be, I supposed to become a football development officer, just given I'd, 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 been, I'd been doing the jobs for, you know, alongside development officers, albeit as a student, I'd been, I'd been trying to ingrain myself in that work as, as much as possible for that period of time. And then, obviously, I'm imagining, as you said there, it gave you a real good grounding when you're within that role of having an understanding of what your younger ones need and what that looked like what your older ones need and what that looks like because you've been into the field and you've actually done it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it was, I think that's that's so important as well. But, you know, alongside all that, you're, you're obviously delivering the, the grassroots coach education as well. So you're, you're learning all the time as well as doing your own B licence and A licence and everything else. So you've just got that whole, that whole melting pot that you've got at that point. You're just a sponge, I think, at that point in your life. And so many coaches will probably be able to allude to that. Just that, you now I always ask the question at the beginning of a B licence, you know, how, what's your, how many of you, what's your average number of hours that you're working in coaching? You know, and you get, you know, I'm pointing at the screen here because obviously we did it in Zoom and the answers are flashing up at 30 hours and 40 hours. And it's the same in the classroom, you know, when you start a B licence. I do 30 hours a week coaching, I do 40 hours a week coaching, I do 25 hours. That's the kind of average hour, you know, or, or answer that you get is probably 25 hours. But that answer for 25 hours coaching, that's not with one team, as I've said. That's these people that have got this real thirst to learn at that point in their career at B-license level, as I would have been at the time. You know, it's, it's coming from all, it's generally coming from all different backgrounds. Yes, they might have a, they might have a grassroots under-15 team or they might be working in an academy with an under-16 team or whatever. But generally speaking, though, there's a lot of coaches, most coaches, I think, are probably picking up that little bit extra, you know, with with the lower-level grassroots teams or maybe a little bit of one-to-one coaching or maybe a little bit of community-based stuff or just even hiring out the local church hall to get some kids in. But that... As you've said, Michael, that all adds, that all tips into those experiences that are just so valuable, um, and just just help you build and learn um, as you go. And then I guess f- for you, when when you've d- done those couple of years as the football development officer, what was your next step? Obviously, you knew that was your career that you wanted to go into. Did were you manage to get a footing in that, or did you go elsewhere? Yeah. No, I did. I, well, I graduated and I went to Australia for a year, which I enjoyed, um, and, and did some roles out in Australia. Um, there, um, but then when I came back, I was fortunate that it was a job in Dumfries and Galloway, which is a kind of more a more rural area from Glasgow, a couple of hours south. And um, I got the role there as football development officer, and I was there for a couple of years. And then I moved back up to Glasgow to be the football development officer in Glasgow, and funnily enough. The senior football development officer in Glasgow at the time was uh, was John Brown. And John Brown, I'd mentioned before, who was a football development officer when I had started my, my work placement. So, so John and I have kind of crossed paths quite often throughout our careers. Um, and John John was the football development officer, sorry, the senior football development officer in Glasgow. And when, when he had the role there and I moved back from Dumfries, what he decided to do, there was, was John was the senior and then there was four football development officers below and he decided to, I suppose, kind of compartmentalise the the work that we were doing. 
So one of the boys might have done more kind of, you know, community-based programs. One of the boys would have done the 4v4s, 7v7s, and all the planning and prep and everything for that at the weekends, the, you know, and working with the league structures. And he decided to give me coach education. So that then, you know, that then gave me the extra, I suppose, the bit between the teeth and the thirst and the hunger and the, the passion for for developing coach education. So I then looked after coach education for the city. Um, and in Glasgow, we would have maybe got about 1,000 participants through a year in Glasgow, which was good. Um, obviously, the rest of the staff would always, would always work together on it, but I had the kind of lead for coach education. So that kind of then gave me the confidence when a job came up in Ireland. Um, they were looking for a national coordinator in coach education at the time. And that kind of gave me the confidence then because Glasgow was the biggest local authority in Scotland. So um, I knew kind of how busy it could be. Yes, I was maybe only working at the grassroots level in terms of coach education provision, but, you know, um, you know, going over Ireland afforded me that opportunity then to start working at the, at the UEFA licence level. And how did you find the differences between kind of working from your localiser of Glasgow, grabbing it as bigger, to then obviously dealing in a national FA, if you like? Uh, it was just, you know what, I just, I remember the job, I remember texting friends and colleagues, you know, at first, just thinking, I was just blown away by the fact that I was maybe dealing one week with grassroots coach education or level one coach education, and two weeks later, um, the head of, the head of, what was his title, senior coach educator, was a, was a lad called Noel O'Reilly, poor Noel passed away, um, but, but Noel, I remember Noel handing me just threw, throwing me down a big, huge pile of paper. And I said, what's that, what's that for? And he said, I want you to mark the theory exams for the B licence. And I just thought, wow, I'm now being charged with marking theory exams at B licence level. You know, and two weeks ago, I was dealing, <laughs> I was dealing with gra- grassroots coach education. So there was very much a kind of baptism of fire. <clears throat> and thankfully, the likes of Noel, the likes of Paki Bonner, you know, they just, they just let me run with it as, as much as they possibly could. And they trusted me. Um, and we just kind of worked together and we got, you know, we got as much as we possibly could up and running in Ireland as well. Um, and a man you'll know well with the, with the Southampton badge, you know, Les Reid was still kind of working with Ireland um, as a consultant at the time for coach education. So just that, again, just, just learning again about, you know, the, that national programme, trying to get to grips with the, the, the national programme and how all these different people because what, what ends up happening, I'm, you know, being in charge of that national program, I've then got, you know, you know, Dublin was like a was like another Glasgow, so I'm now trying to oversee that, and then you've got Cork and, you know, all these other different areas, Galways and Athlones and all these other different areas that, that are, you know, huge coach education delivers on their run right through the football development officer network. So it was listen, it was it was fantastic. I loved my time there and. and was fortunate enough that I kicked on from there as well so it was um, the, the people in Ireland were very good to me and it, it was a good time. And did they challenge anything that you'd done back in your time in Scotland? Was there anything you thought actually they do this a little bit better than we'd been doing or um, yeah how did that look? One of the first one of the first things myself and Noel did um, was to come back to Scotland. The two of us came back to Scotland and um, Noel watched from the sideline um, as I kind of tried to get through the, the elite youth licence. So, you know, I remember coming back, right, and I remember Packy Bonner saying, Packy Bonner was the technical director of um, Ireland at the time, and Packy said, 
Greg, I'd like us to, we don't have a you know, youth licence on a pathway in Ireland. Okay, can you go back to Scotland? Why don't you just go back to Scotland and have a look and, and maybe beg, borrow and steal their stuff? Um, and I can't remember how it came about. It was maybe through conversation with Jim Fleeting, who was the technical director in Scotland at the time. And Jim said, well, why don't you just come and do it? Why don't you just come and do it? Because you've got all the prerequisites, you know, how we work in Scotland. Um, of course, it'll get you back home for, for periods of time as well. So that's exactly what we did. And Noel O'Reilly, as I said, who was the senior coach educator. So myself and Noel would come over back over to Glasgow. Um, so I was probably spending more time in Glasgow, although I'd just started the job in Ireland. I was probably spending more time back home, which was which was a nice thing as well. Um, as, as we went through that kind of elite youth license and, and Noel obviously watching from the side of the pitches with the so it was good that I was going through it to try, obviously try to develop that course that course over in Ireland and then after you finished your role there you went back to Scotland I'm right in thinking mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, what role did you take up when you went back to Scotland and what did that look like there was a I think you know, Donald Park was the head of coach education um, Donald Park was head of coach education and he managed to get a I can't remember, but there was a couple of guys before 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 me. There was there was Mark McNally who's, who's now at Celtic. There was um, there was Ray who's now the Ray's now the manager at Queens Park. There was a couple of guys in the role before, but their thing was that and I think this is quite interesting for me actually. They 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 always had a passion for the pitch, a passion to go back and coaching. So whilst coach education perhaps filled a void for them and was a was a you know a, a career for them for a for a period of time, when a club comes calling for them to get back onto the pitch as a coach or a head coach as the, as the guys maybe were, you know that they're, they're going to get lost to that. They're going to get lost to that. I think um, from the Scottish FA, I was a little bit different in that. You know, I'd served my you know what was a six years as a development officer, then over in Ireland, eight years as, you know, leading their coach education programmes. And then, you know, so I was a little bit different. I remember, you know, the, I think the two or three people before me, there, there was Dave Callum as well, who went, who went back to Rangers. And I remember Jim phoning me for a little bit of advice now and again, saying, you know, I'm, I'm, what, what do you do? Because I had, I had four coach education uh, managers, I think we'd call them managers or, or tutors. Um, below me in Ireland as well. And Jim was saying, how did you go about that? And we were kind of knocking a few ideas back and forward. But I said, I think, Jim, you, you need somebody to kind of to lead the programme, to manage the programme, to oversee the programme, who's not got that, who looks at it a little bit differently and maybe doesn't have that want always to go back to the pitch. You know, that's their, that's their first passion. And, you know, I completely understand why they would do that. I'm maybe a little bit different in that, you know, I think my passion is coach education. I think, my, I'm saying I think I know my passion is coach education. My passion is in setting up these courses and seeing people do well through, through those courses and setting up pathways and, and things like that. So, you know, it all need kind, kind of managed. And, and Donald Park, who was the head of coach education previously, as I said, had lost these three roles um, below him a, a few times. So... The job came up anyway, and I applied for it and was fortunate enough to get it. And, you know, so that, that kind of brought me back home into that coach, coach education manager type role below below uh, Donald Park, who was just, a, you know, if you talk to anybody in Scotland about, about coaching, you know, the first person that probably spins to mind is, is Donald Park. So Parky, as is, is he's affectionately known, 
um, was, the, was the head of coach education. I was a coach education manager. Jim and Parker, Jim was the head of football development, while, while Parker was the, the head of coach education. And the two of them, um, you know, the Scottish FA maybe quite cleverly started looking at started looking at succession planning. Um, <clears throat> so that's where I kind of went into that role as, as head of coach education. Listen, Greg, that's probably a lot of time that we'd set aside for this call. Um, I'm sure I can say for everyone, thank you very much for for taking the time out to talk to us today and um, definitely learn some invaluable information. And if you're up for it, it would definitely be something that uh, we'll do again soon. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.